Well, good morning, church family. Last week, uh, I began a new series in uh, the pastoral epistle or letter of, um, or the epistle of uh, 1 Thessalonians. And um, you may remember that Thessalonica was an important city um, in Macedonia. It was a port that gave easy access from Rome to the east. And so it was a, a key uh, trading location, good for business, good for communication, good for uh, travel, uh, kind of all of the above. And so when Paul preached in the synagogue for three weeks, when he got there, that was kind of his normal pattern. So Paul preached in the synagogue there for three weeks. And um, and then as he did, many people, some some Jewish people, some Greek people or Gentiles, basically anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile or, or uh, a Greek in that sense and in that day, uh, many believed the gospel. Uh, Luke, Dr. Luke in Acts 17 goes on to tell us many influential women believed the gospel. And as a result of this, he sort of turned upside down the political stability or at least some thought. And so they, uh, they started a, a, a mob and, um, and they grabbed people who just were you know those people in life that you've met and they just at times you watch them and they're just they just follow somebody says oh i've got something over here come check this out and they're just ready to go you know some people are just ready for a fight um there were some people like this in this mob and you've got a few leaders of this mob and everybody else is just kind of ready to go follow and ready to go protect uh caesar and ready to go protect the empire and all this sort of thing this preaching of king jesus who lived a perfect life and died a death for me for you to pay the penalty for sin, the only pe- penalty that could be paid that would actually atone for sin in a, in a final once for all sense. And Paul is preaching this gospel and he's preaching this gospel that it was necessary for Jesus to die. Necessary for Jesus to rise from the grave where he overcame death and hell and the power of sin over people who trusted in God. And this was nerve-wracking to people because they thought, whoa, hold on, we have a king. What's, what's this Jesus king you're speaking of? And so that made them nervous. And so they, they started a, a mob. And so after several weeks, he preached in the temple for three weeks. And he was there, we don't know exactly, but a couple weeks longer maybe. And, and then he fled. Um, and, and to be clear, not fled just because he was afraid of persecution, because he faced much persecution. But he fled because he knew his mission was not over. He had work to do. And those who were with him knew, let's get him out of here so he can keep on preaching the gospel. And so he fled to Berea to escape this persecution. So last week we covered some of this background. And one of the patterns that we saw is uh, now this it's important to understand this is a pattern we're seeing paul's not laying out a teaching for how this must be but it's a pattern we see he does lay down that teaching elsewhere but here we see this pattern uh of partnering with others to build god's kingdom and releasing others into uh releasing some into another person's discipling care right You're, you're partnering with people you trust in the ministry of the gospel of jesus and as you partner with people you build trust with one another. It's really trust in the Lord's working in that individual or in those people. And so when the time comes to pivot in ministry or a ministry focus needs to pivot, 
You say, it's okay, because I've got trusted partners in the gospel, right? We're not just fellowshipping in the gospel like we're going to do tonight at Taste and See. I want to make sure you come out to that tonight, church family. Please join us for that. We're fellowshipping, but we're partnering, right? That's a whole nother sermon series. But we're partnering with others to build God's kingdom, releasing some who I need to go do something else or you need to go do something else, another ministry focus, and you, you release this one or two, five, whatever, into another's care because you're not, we, you're not, I'm not the only one that can, uh, can disciple other people. Now, I have to just tell you an unintended consequence of me talking about releasing and moving from one location to another is that I had several people that asked last week, that sounded like a pastoral transition message last week, like Matt's getting ready to take off. And unless you tell me it's time for me to take off, I'm not going anywhere. So I just, I'm not even that important. So it feels kind of odd to say that, like that's going to give you some great peace. No, we trust in Jesus. We don't trust in any man. But I just feel like I need to say it because several people asked me and a few people said, well, I had several people ask me. So there we go. You're stuck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> No, it's, it's okay. No, say it again, say it again. <laughs> so we release some into another's discipling care, but then we also release some to go disciple others. Some, some grow from milk to meat, and they're ready to take on new responsibility. Now, what is often the case is when you're ready to take on new discipling responsibility, you don't always feel like you're ready to take on new discipling responsibility, right? But isn't that what faith is? The Lord says, I want you to walk. No, no, no. No, put your foot in the river. Oh, and then it parts. Oh, that's how that works. Okay. Step out in faith. Walk as though that step will be there, even though you don't see the foundation underneath it. Take the step. And we all need to hear that many times over. So that's what we saw and focused on last week. So Paul's writing this letter with his ministry partners, Silvanus or Acts says Silas, just two different ways of saying his name. Uh, and with Timothy, and they write to encourage this this young church. But this church was an effective church in only their short time. Persecution is coming. That means hard times are coming. You've got these young believers, and he writes to encourage them. And I love that he uses doctrine to encourage them. Sometimes people will say, well, I just need help with this, or I just need to understand this, or I just need to know how to do this, but I don't really need the doctrine. No, that's garbage. We need doctrine because it's doctrine that applies to everyday life, which undergirds our faith and sustains us because our knowledge of who God is must be here as it then turns into experiential knowledge when we trust God based on what we know of him to be true. And then it solidifies it. It codifies it in our life, which is what second Peter one, three through 10 talks about. I'd read it if I could, but we just don't have time. So Paul is writing this letter, this, this message. It's a message of thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God for God's work in and through these young believers in Thessalonica. It's a message of holiness. It's a message of hope in the midst of hardship. Throughout this book, you'll see this. And he uses the end times perspective to drill the point home. He speaks of end times to anchor their hope in the confident reality of who Jesus is and what he will do in the end. 
So this is eschatos. We get the word eschatology from it. It means just literally last things. And um, the way we think about last things affects your purpose for living and your ethical decision-making, right? Now, I know where some of you might be going with this. You're drawing out your end times chart in your mind. This is going to happen, and then it's going to be this many, and then this is going to happen, and that. That's an important conversation. That's a meaningful conversation. That's meaningful study, right? Uh, it, it, it's a it's a it's a subheading in systematic theology, the doctrine of last things or eschatology, as I mentioned. But the goal isn't to get caught up in debates and arguments about how everything is going to unfold. Listen, I'm not afraid of debates or conversations. I know you're not either. It can be good for us. It is good for us, in fact, to study the scriptures, to to show yourself as one who who knows God and, and, and loves his word and loves digging in. But Paul focuses on the confidence that they need to have in the return of Christ and in the judgment day of the Lord. And he says, that's what's going to determine how you pursue holiness, how you pursue partnership, how you prioritize your your, your time, your life, your activities, your finances, your relationships. Whether, whether, Whether you agree with someone else or someone else agrees with you on your last things or your end times or your eschatological to just sound kind of smart for a second. It won't last, trust me. To get sidetracked on that or to prioritize that over and above other aspects of ministry would be, would be to miss the whole point of the conversation altogether. The doctrine of last things is to focus on the fact that Jesus will return and there will be a judgment day and there will be persecution. And, and there's more to that. For me to say that that's all it is would, would not be, would be too simplistic. But in this letter, we're focusing on the biblical theology of hope and faith and perseverance or persistence that thinking about our end times helps us understand, helps us focus on. That's, that's Paul's message here. Not to get your chart right, right? So, Paul's main point is Jesus is going to come again for his people and there will be a great judgment. Great as in massive. It'll be wonderful for some people and it'll be terrible for some. It'll be wonderful for some people. It'll be atrocious, horrific for some. It'll be unexpected. Not for us. Because we know it's coming. We don't know when it's coming, but we know it's coming. And we're ready. We don't live in the dark. We live in the light. And so we live as children of the light. So at the beginning of this letter and at the end of the letter, he he encourages these Christians. And he says, you've been elected. You've been destined to obtain salvation. And you're like, oh, wait, Pastor Matt, you don't want to talk about end times, but you want to talk about election. Well, I'm just talking about what the Bible talks about. I'm just talking about what 1 Thessalonians talks about in chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about the fact that they've been chosen. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, he talks about the fact that they've been destined not for judgment, but to obtain salvation. Again, we're not going to get bogged down in the weeds. 
We're going to read what God tells us about who we are as his chosen people. And we're going to stand confidently in the fact that we are his. Outside of that, there's a whole lot of mystery. And I want to tell you, friends, brothers and sisters, mystery is good. The Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord. And there's a whole lot about these conversations we don't understand. And I will tell you, I'm not going to try to answer all those questions for you in this series. Because Paul makes the statements and he moves on. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to make the statements and move on. Other times we'll slow down a little bit because we need to understand some things like you'll see today. This is a reality that should bring comfort and it should cause you and I to, to be encouraged, to be comforted that we're God's children. And to use that same comfort to encourage one another in the faith. And he goes on specifically, he says, uh, encourage one another, respect those who minister among them, esteeming them highly in chapter 513. He says, live at peace with one another. Admonish the idle. Admonish is a, is a strong challenger and encouragement, maybe a rebuke. Admonish the idle. Those who are not walking or living for Jesus, those who are not prioritizing their relationship with Christ, they're to be admonished. Now, wait, aren't we supposed to just be nice and just pat everybody on the hand? Nope, nope. Not in God's economy. Kind, yes. Gracious, yes. Loving, yes. Truthful, yes. Admonishing at times, yes. Proudly, no. Humbly, 100%. Why? Because I care about how thinking about the last things affects how you live today. And God cares about it. God cares about it. Live at peace with one another. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone and seek to do good to each other. This is, these are some of the exhortations that he gives at the end of this letter. And, 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 and he says, we're to rejoice. We're to pray constantly. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. So if you don't have it open already, open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 1 today. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, which will be a two-part message or two messages in this section of verses. And uh, we'll spend a couple weeks here. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen for you, but that just doesn't aid. So if you have your Bible or a a phone, click to it, open it, and look there. I think it's on page 927 in a book that should be near you in a seat back. If you don't have a Bible, we want to help help you out there. In these first few verses, he talks about the church's impression, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's read together. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. For they themselves kept for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, when the triune God makes has impressed himself in you, your life will make an impression for him. When the triune God, that's a fancy way of saying three in one. We'll get there later on. When the triune God has impressed himself in you, your life will make an impression for him. Caitlin Bell, you got new boots this week. And I just couldn't help but, uh, Caitlin, come up here. Show everybody your boots. I know, I think they came from Bree, but come here. No, you gotta, I know they probably can't run in them, barely walk in them, but come on up for a second. Come up here. Cause everybody was standing before that. You're welcome. You. By the way, will you forgive me? Sorry. Of. Okay. I'm not sorry. So <laughs> can you guys see your boots or do you need to go up here? Oh no, they need you to go up here. Hey, you gotta go up here. There we go. Let me see the bottom of those things. Oh Yeah. I tell you what, when Caitlin Bell, you can go sit down now. Thanks. Thank I appreciate it. <laughs> I saw her walk in with those things today and I was like, that is making a statement. <laughs> I assure you that when she's walking through the woods and the dirt and the mud, those souls, they're making an impression. And when the triune God makes an impression not on you, but in you, you make an impression for the world, for him in the world. Now, it sounds weird to say an impression in you, but that's in fact what happens. I want you to think about two words in that sentence there. Brain, you can just leave that up for another minute. Impressed or impression and the word in. I'm using the word impression here, not like, oh, that's impressive. But I'm using it in the, in the idea or the context of like a stamp, right? I'm thinking about one of those old wax seals where, remember, in the, you see, maybe seen those videos or read some history and they would fold the, the envelope over and then they would, they would light a, a candle and then they would melt wax on the envelope and then they would have a stamp and it would put the insignia, maybe the letter of their last name or a design on it. And you knew this stamp was from this individual because the insignia, the impression that was made on that stamp is an indicator of whose it was, who it came from. And when Jesus Christ indwells you, he makes an impression not on you externally first, but in you and it works its way out. And so when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit make an impression in you, impresses himself in you, your life will make an impression for him, right? He, he says of this church, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, 
in God the Father and, you put in parentheses here, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This idea of being in Christ or in the Father is this great doctrine of our union and communion with God. The Old Testament church, I mean the old church in the 16th, 17th, 18th century would talk about this doctrine. It was an identity statement. I'm in Christ, which means everything that I have from God, everything that I need from God comes to me because I'm trusting in Christ. And it's not just made available to me, but I am enabled only by the working of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the things that God calls me to do. I wasn't even preparing for the message this week. And well, I mean, I prepared for the message this week, but I I was reading a book that was for something else. And and this doctrine came up and I was so thankful of it for it. One of the things I've I've said frequently is asking the Lord to help you is a wonderful prayer. I mean, it is a good prayer. Just to say, God, I can't do this. Help me. Right? It's that sense of total surrender. God, I need you. Help me. God loves that prayer. But Jerry Bridges says an even better prayer is to say, God, enable me. I cannot do it unless you enable me. And God's promise is that he will. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in everyone who calls on the name of Jesus for salvation, he will work in you and he will work through you. So the church here is those who are set apart by God. It's literally meaning those those that are called out. Now, in that day and age, the word uh, ecclesia, which is just the word that we get when we talk about the word church, when we see that in the Bible uh, or theologians see that in the Bible, right? We say, oh, that's the word for church, called out ones, gathered ones. But in that day, it was a it was a common word. It didn't just refer to Christians, but it referred to other people as well, because it's just a Greek word that means the gathering. And so he's saying he is pointing to you who are called out by God and for God, gathering together in the name of the father and in the son, Jesus Christ. That's who I'm talking to. Not just everybody who goes to the synagogue. Nope. You want to know what what gathering to go to? Go to the ones who are talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mark Dever writes in his book, The Church, the Gospel Made Visible. He says, the church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church. He purchased it with his blood and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ the dwelling place of his spirit and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. I should have removed those scriptures from there. Make it easier to read for you. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel and the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. So he says to the church, those in the father, God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is made up of people who are in God the Father. So to speak of being in God rather than the church of God is kind of unusual for Paul. He usually talks about the church of God. J.I. Packer answers this question, what is a Christian? He says that the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know 
is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. Listen to the whole quote here. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the father of the holy creator. In the same way, you you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this isn't the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity well at all. How does being thought of God's son, God's daughter, change your perspective on everything in life? When you're discouraged, when you're fearful, when you don't know how to control the circumstances around you, you think, So it's okay because I'm God's son. He's my father. I'm good. I mean, I have no idea how this is going to turn out right now. But I'm God's. And he watches over his children. Fathers, teach your children about your love for them as their father and communicate clearly that you are an imperfect father. But there is a father who is also your father, who is their perfect father. I make no bones about it to my kids to say, I'm your father, but I'm not perfect. But we have a father in heaven who is. And as much as As much as I love you and as much as I would give anything for you, you have a father who was already given his son for you. You say, well, the image of my father on earth is not a very good one. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, that's the sad reality for many. It is. And I don't minimize that. And so we have to ask the Lord to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Lord, help me understand who you are as my father, according to your word. Help me to see you as you are perfectly. And help me to believe that what you say about who you are is exactly who you are. But what's important is that he connects the father to the son, because the son is the only way to get to the father in relationship. And everything that Paul is talking about has to do with objective relationship or what we call uh, positional relationship or positional sanctification. It just means that who you are in God defines everything about you. And you must be in him before you receive any of the benefits in your own life from him. Now, we receive the benefits of being blessed by those who are walking with God and that that rubs off on us and we praise god for that but to personally experience it you must be in the father jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me so to say the church in god the father and and the lord jesus christ is to show that jesus is the fulfillment 
of all of the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the foundation for the church. He is God. And saying that Jesus is the Son, or Jesus as God the Son, is is the distinguishing mark of Christianity, friends. It's the distinguishing mark of Christianity. To be in Christ means everything. If you're in Christ, the Son, you're in the Father. It means that we, we identify with Him completely. We are, we are organically in Him, like a branch is in the vine. So long as it's connected to the vine, Paul says, you have died and your life, listen, is hidden with Christ in God. Oh, how can I worship God? How can I serve God? How can I disciple someone else? Okay, okay, get the idea of partnering and then releasing. And I just need to be always under someone else because I'm never going to be able to be the one released to disciple someone else. Because I know my history. I know my past. I know my sin. Well, you got a pastor who knows all that too. About himself. I'm not talking about you. Some of you got nervous there. He knows. When we see ourselves according to our own sin and we continue to focus our gaze there, we look at the very thing that God has set aside, that he has done away with at Calvary. God says, you're mine. I died for you. I paid the penalty. There's not one more drop of wrath left for you because of your sin. Now serve me. Tell others about how wonderful that is. Friend, if you are so caught up in the sin of your past that you will not walk forward in the identity of who God says you are, you may not be a Christian or you're not walking in the spirit. Because to believe who you are according to God is the very definition of walking according to faith. That's why Paul said in in Philippians, uh, I don't know, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on on my sin, not on my my bad past, not on the, the horrific things that I've done, not on the current thoughts that I have. no. We don't set our sight on the circumstances. We set our sights on the Lord because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. You as a child of God is the unseen reality of who you are. Walk in it, friends. Galatians, walk in the spirit so that you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Woe is me thinking about your own sinful past is walking, is gratifying a desire of self-pity. It's a reverse form of pride. To deny that God is able to free you from your chains is to call God a liar. Walk in it. Believe him. Oh, wait. Lord, help me believe. Lord, make me believe. Make me, enable me to believe. And walk in it. Walk in it.
There's a wonderful hymn. It's a wonderful hymn called The Church is One Foundation. It was written by Samuel Stone, and, and he wrote it in response to some liberal controversy in the church or some liberal theology that was creeping in the church. Now, you've heard of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's 12 statements, 12 truth statements about who God is, who the church is. And what he did is he put together, a, he was a poet, and he put together a book uh, of poems, which became hymns, each one representing a different aspect of the Apostles' Creed. And I'm just going to read part of it here. It says that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Remember grace, undeserved favor. Well, I can't walk in Christ because of all my sinful past. It's undeserved, this grace from God. It's undeserved. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to, to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor. She ever shall prevail. If you are in Christ, you are part of the church, the called out people of God in the Father. And we see not in the greeting, but a few verses down, the Holy Spirit. Verses 5 and 6, he mentions the Holy Spirit whose power takes the truth of the gospel and he applies it to the hearts of the believers. Now, the Bible uses the, heart, the word heart to speak of the whole of man. It's our thinking, it's our, it's our will, uh, it's our reasoning, it's our ability to make decisions. And he applies the gospel to their heart, which means they believed it and they were transformed by these truths. Well, how do we know? Well, it was evidenced by their joy, he says in verse 6. And he, he's thankful. He's giving thanks. Verse three, 2 and 3 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That's like saying, I am constantly bringing back to my memory the memory that I have of you doing what God has made you and called you to do. I'm intentionally conjuring it up in my mind, recalling it back to active memory, back to my the active RAM if you're a computer person. And he says, remembering before our God and Father. You see how everything is heavenward? I thank God for you. And I remember, I call back to memory before God, your work of faith your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is supposed to be part two of today, but I knew I was never going to get there. Faith, hope, and love. Your work of faith, 
your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Remember, hope is a confident assurance, not a crossing your fingers and hoping. I hope it works out. No, we're confident. We're confident in the face of death. Doesn't mean there's no fear going on. Doesn't mean there's no, oh, I've never walked through this veil before. I've never experienced this before. I'm kind of nervous about this. I'm not trying to minimize that. It's real. But in the midst of it, there's a, there's a steadfastness of hope that says, I know I'll see God. And I can't wait to be in his presence. No more sin. In this short amount of time, a couple months, Paul grounds them in this reality of the Trinity. To 20 years since Jesus died. And, and Paul doesn't elaborate too much on the Trinity because he knows they've got it. They're tracking with him. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm just going to try to do this kind of quickly. I'll, I'll, we'll make a, a, a great graphic uh, that communicates more than I can communicate in a few minutes here available this week. But there's been a lot of heresy about the Trinity in, in ca- the capital C church history. Some people think God moves from being the Father to the Son, and then from the Son to the Holy Spirit, God changes. You know, we talk about analogies of water as a liquid turning to steam, to a gas from ice. Like God changes modes. That's a, a heresy. It's wrong. Just one example. It's all I have time for today. But God eternally exists as three persons. Father. Son, Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. And there is one God. Now look at this image here. We use the word Trinity. It's not a word found in the Bible. But it's a word that, an extra biblical word that describes a biblical truth. You see God at the center of this graphic, this circle. And we see that the Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. In other words, he's distinct. And so when Paul addresses the church of the Thessalonians as being in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, he's making a distinction. You're in the Father and you're in Christ. How do I know? Because I see the evidence of the Holy Spirit working. The Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is God. But Jesus the Son is not the Father. And Jesus the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Holy Spirit is is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. Any analogy that we try to use falls, falls short. Because we're trying to visualize something 
that really is beyond our capacity of understanding. For Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man, I mean, that just boggles the mind. Remember your identity statement. You are in Christ. You are in the Father. And as the triune God makes an impression in you, you make an impression for him. It works its way out of you. When you feel like saying, how come these things are happening to me? How come this is going on with my family? You say, has God forgotten me? No, you need to encourage yourself. That's what Paul tells these believers to do. Encourage yourself, encourage one another and remind yourself, I am God's beloved child. How do I know? Because this passage says, beloved, loved of God. I am God's beloved child and he has chosen me. Why me? No idea. If we answer that question with because and you fill it out with a reason that's anything because or that's anything. I don't know how to say the sentence I'm trying to say. If we say why me and we fill in that blank with anything that doesn't just say because he's God. We begin to give a reason of why we think we're worthy of being chosen and none of us are. And that's not the point. Well, how do you figure out who is and who isn't? You just like Paul. Because the gospel came to you. Because you received the gospel. And because I see evidence of the Holy Spirit working out your salvation with fear and trembling through you. That's how we know. Well, how do we know who's going to be? We don't. It's not our concern. The secret things, the hidden things belong to God. We've got a mission, church. We've got a mission. You say, I'm in Christ and I know that I'm chosen and I know that I'm destined for salvation because 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 say it. When you feel like saying, man, I'm a loser. I mean, I can't do anything right. Gently rebuke yourself. What? Yes. Rebuke yourself. Your opinion of yourself is always subordinate to God's opinion of you. Always. And it needs to be informed by what God says of you. And every time, and I mean every time that we try to make our opinion of ourselves over what God says to be true about us, we need a gentle rebuke. And if we keep persisting in it, we need a stronger rebuke. And if you can't rebuke yourself strongly enough, say, God, I'm, I'm not living in faith. Enable me, change me. Tell a friend, I need you to rebuke me. So that you walk in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. So walk, Christian. Put on those Caitlin Bellew boots and walk and make an impression as the Holy Spirit has made an impression on you. Walk. When you think you don't have the power to follow the Lord, to walk in obedience, remember that you are to exert all of your energy to say, Lord, I can't do it. Enable me is not to say I can't do anything. If God wants me to do it, he'll make it happen. No, that's a lie. It's contrary to scripture. So work with all your might, work out what God has worked in you. Paul says, I've struggled with all my energy. So believe who you are in Christ and break a spiritual sweat. 
trusting him every step of the way. In our lives, it's an imperfect representation of what Jesus did when he lived and he never thought one wrong thought. He was perfect. He had it in him because he is God to be perfect. But he still had to walk it out. He was made perfect, the Bible says, through his obedience. And that's why we come to this table every week. To say, Lord, I need a tangible reminder. That's why Jesus gave this to us. I need a tangible reminder that I can't, I can't do this on my own, but I can do it in you. And to deny that is to call God a liar. But listen, Paul's tone here is encouragement. So I want you to be encouraged in these things. Sometimes we just need a strong encouragement. And I want to ask you, if you're living a Christian life today as one who's defeated, I can't understand the Bible. Yeah, why even try? Well, I will tell you, friend, you don't have to understand every page of the Bible to have the Bible work in you and through you. Because that's how God has chosen to commune with his people. Well, I don't have this gift or that gift, or I have that gift, but I'm not as good as that other person. It's all just lies from the enemy. I mean, some of it might be true, but you don't have to be as good as that other person. You need to be who God created you to be before the foundation of the world. And as he knit you together in your mother's womb, knowing every day that would come for you, before one of your days came to be, he appointed them for you. Rest in that. Your great days, your terrible days, everything in between, God said, this is going to work. Why? Well, newsflash, it's about God. It's not about you. And I don't mean that in an unkind way. We live for the glory of God. And we strive after him with all our effort.